just a short book, uh, four chapters. And if you've got the Pew Bibles, it's not that easy to find. 1182, page 1182. Colossians, this letter written to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it was doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Thanks, David. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, it is great to be able to tuck into a new book. We've been enjoying working through the book of Acts over the last um, seven or eight weeks, and we will get back to Acts at the start of next year or the end of the year, but we're going to look at Colossians now for seven weeks and really enjoy all the riches of this great book. As we do, let me pray. Lord God, I thank you today for your word to us. I thank you, Lord, that in this book of Colossians, we have the treasures of your word revealed through the Apostle Paul to the people of Colossians and preserved for us today. Lord, I thank you that these words speak loudly to us and guide us in understanding who you are and what you've done for us and how we live in response of this. Today, Lord, as we listen and as we hear, I pray that you would guide us by your spirit to continually grow to be more like Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to ask a question. This is my opening question. If you go to the next slide there, Gordon. What do you get someone who has everything? I, I suspect most of you have been in this situation. You've been trying to buy a gift for someone and you think, they've, they've got it all. What on earth could I get them? 
One thing I've learned recently, having children, is I've been able to much more clearly see the difference between gift buying for children and gift buying for adults. Heidi is busily building up a list of things that she would love to have. It's on Anita's phone at the moment, and we have to keep reminding her, you're not going to get everything on your list. Easy to find things for children, right? But buying for adults is hard. It's hard to know what to get. A birthday, a Christmas is coming up, you're supposed to get a gift. It's really tricky, because often it feels like someone has either already got everything they would want, or there's a reason why they don't have something, and that's probably because they don't want it. There's a, um, a comedian I like who talks about this, this conundrum, buying um, for someone who's got everything they need, and he says, he says, as an adult, but particularly he thinks as an adult man, you have to be very careful what you say in the kind of three weeks before your birthday, because people are list- listening for any clue to, to think of something good to get you. And he, was, he talks about this time, he, was, he identified a bird in his garden, he said, well, I said, I didn't know you knew much about birds. He says, yeah, just a little bit, just, a, just know a few birds. For his birthday, binoculars, bird-watching book, everything. He says, you've got to be very careful because people have no idea what to buy you. In our small group, we have a similar version of this question sometimes, which is, what do you pray for someone who has everything? We really enjoy sharing about our lives and praying for each other in our small group. Uh, and there's usually lots of really helpful and important requests But sometimes for people, things are going okay. Family, relationships, walk with God, work, what have you. It's going okay. What do you pray for someone who has everything? What do you pray for someone who's doing pretty well? Well, today's passage, we see Paul praying for the Colossian church. And there's a sense in which this is the question he's answering. What do you pray for someone? What do you pray for a church which is doing really well? What do you pray for a church that has everything? Before we look at this, let's just consider this letter as a whole. We're going to be in Colossians for seven weeks. Colossians is a letter written by Paul to the church in the city of Colossae, which is a small town in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The maps aren't amazing, but you can can see it there in the Mediterranean, and then there's a bit of a zoom in there. Not a big town in the centre of Turkey. This church in Colossae was founded by a a man called Epaphras, uh, who probably met Paul in Ephesus, a neighbouring town, when Paul was there, and then returned to his home of Colossae and told people there the gospel and started the church. Paul himself didn't go to Colossae. He only really knows this church through reports from Epaphras and others. Colossae was mainly a Gentile town too, so it was full of Romans and Greeks and probably some other nationalities. Uh, There would have been some Jewish people there, but they would have been definitely a minority in the town. And the church would have been similar. The church would have also been mainly made up of people of Greek and Roman background rather than Jewish background. Paul writes this letter while he's in prison in Rome in about 60 or 61 AD, and he sends this letter off with um, two gentlemen, Tychicus and Onesimus. And Onesimus was a local of Colossae, so he was heading home. And these two gentlemen, they took at least three letters with them, uh, Colossians, Philemon, and another letter to the Laodiceans, which uh, unfortunately hasn't survived to the present day. But they took these letters from Rome to Turkey. As we get into this letter, we'll get a sense of its contents. We'll get a sense of why Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. And a bit of that comes out today. But maybe the biggest thing we've seen today is we see what the Colossians were like. Most of our reading today is a prayer that Paul is recounting to the Colossians. He's saying, this is the sort of thing I pray for you. 
And there's kind of two halves here. There's a thanksgiving, I thank God for you, for all these things. And there's a petition or a request to God. This is what I pray, this is what I want to see in you. This is what I pray for God to do amongst you. He thanks God for them and he prays something for them. And we get an insight into who they are from this. And if I was going to summarize that, we will say the Colossian church is complete and not yet mature. Complete but not yet mature. All right, let's have a look at these sections uh, as we consider this passage. In the first section, we actually, we see the Colossians are a complete church. I'll read this again. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. It's a pretty standard kind of ancient form letter greeting. It's probably not the sort of letter form greeting you use today, but that was pretty common in this time. It's clear that Timothy's there with him in Rome, uh, and he greets these people, people he's never met, he greets them with grace and peace. Then we get a thanksgiving section from verses 3 to 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. All right, what's all this about? I find these sections of Paul's letters really hard. They're so meaty, aren't they? And there's so many little phrases and things. You kind of have to do a bit of chewing to get into what's, what's he's saying here. Another reason this is really can be hard to consume, in the original Greek, that's a single sentence. Um, the NIV breaks it up into three sentences to make it a bit more readable. But certainly for Paul, this is one thought that's just pouring out of him as he writes or as he dictates this letter. And he's writing it that he thanks God for this church when he prays for them. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus, their love for other Christians, and he says his faith and love come from the hope they have about their future in heaven. Do you hear those three things? They've got faith, they've got hope, and they've got love. This is really important, I think, because it shows how complete this church is. They're not missing anything. A, a church of faith, hope, and love is complete. It's a well-rounded church. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul famously identifies these three values as the things that remain. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But to really see the importance of this church having faith, hope, and love, church he's never met, church that was founded without his influence, is to compare the Colossian church with another church he writes to, the, the church in Ephesus. Uh, I'll just do this for a moment, but hopefully this makes sense. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, this is the Thanksgiving setting. This is a different letter, the letter to Ephesians. Have a listen to what he thanks them for. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Check this out. So this is the letter to Ephesus, a different church, and he thanks them there for their faith and their love, doesn't he? That's pretty good. 
They're doing all right. They've got faith and love. But he doesn't thank God for their hope. Then a few verses later, you see what his prayer is. He actually prays that God would open their heart so that they may have hope. This church in Ephesus, they're not a terrible church, but they're low on hope. They're not a church full of hope. And so he prays for hope. They've got faith and love, not so much hope. In Colossians, they have all three, don't they? Just, I find it really helpful to see the picture of this church. It's a really complete church. It's got faith, hope, and love. And I think this is a really important starting point in this letter because it gives us a sense of Paul's writing here. He's not writing to a church that's just missing something crucial, that's missed the plot or something. He's not writing to a church that's off the rails, that's full of heresy and division. He's not writing to a church that's about to collapse or be defeated. He's writing to a healthy church which has these markers of health, faith, hope, and love. But there's more. There's more to be thankful for. He says the faith, hope, and love come from the gospel that they believed. Now, that's probably not a huge surprise. The Colossians heard the gospel of Jesus. They believed it, and they've grown in faith, hope, and love. But then have a look what Paul does. It's like he gets a bit distracted. He's sort of, he's writing again. He's probably dictating about the gospel, and he thinks, yeah, gospel. Let's write more about gospel. Um, It's almost like he takes a little tangent from his point and he talks about the gospel growing and bearing fruit around the whole world, he says, just like it did in Colossae. And then he confirms they learnt the gospel from Epaphras, the founder of the church. What's going on here? I think this is really important. Paul didn't start this church. This is not his church. Epaphras founded it. He didn't go to Colossae and tell them the gospel. Someone else did that. And so when he thinks of Colossae, when he's writing to this church, he instantly thinks of gospel spread. He thinks of the way the gospel works. He thanks God for their faith, hope, and love, but he celebrates this is a church, this church is a model of gospel spread. They're an example for Paul of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, almost having a life of its own. When I think of this, I often suspect Paul might be less excited about a church that he wasn't involved in. It didn't rely on him. He wasn't really directly a factor for this church growing. But I think he's actually more excited. He loves the fact that the spread of the gospel, it doesn't rely on him. It's not all on his shoulders. He wants to see more churches like this in the world, churches that just take off, the gospel just spreading, and all he has to do is just celebrate the good news. And so he highlights Epaphras, the one who brought them a gospel, where it's grown. Not only that, though, this is a complete church. This is not some half-hearted church where Paul's now thinking, you know, great, you know, it's great this church has started, but it's a mess. It's a disaster. You know, I wasn't there to kind of, you know, ease it into being. Now I've got to go and kind of clean up Epaphras' mess or something. No, this is a well-rounded church. This is a wonderful church that's taken off without his direction. And he celebrates that. He thinks this is fantastic. And it's a great kingdom mindset, isn't it, too? In mentioning Epaphras, I think he's celebrating the fact he's actually not going to need to get credit for this church. Someone else can get some credit for this. He doesn't mind. He just wants to celebrate that a wonderful church has grown due to the gospel they received from someone else. I wonder how we go having the same mentality as Paul here. Maybe when we see or we hear of ministries that have nothing to do with us, how do we feel? And as a pastor here, and I'll, I'll be very honest, I have to confess, sometimes there is a risk for me of feeling jealous. Of feeling jealous. Sometimes when I hear about other great events or great youth ministries or large-scale baptisms or 
numbers at gatherings, I can think, I wish we had that here. It's not a great mentality, is it? And it's something I need to keep fighting. See, I want to be more kingdom-focused, like Paul. I want to celebrate ministry that's got nothing to do with me, just for the fact that God's being glorified, just for the fact that people are trusting in Jesus. And I think it's a fight we all have, that fight against a territorial mentality. And I think Paul here, he does it so well. We see his joy, thanking God for the faith, hope, and love of this church due to the gospel they received from someone else. So what comes next? Well, Paul's just given thanks for this church being complete. They've got faith, they've got hope, and they've got love. A complete and healthy church. He loves the gospel has spread beyond his own personal reach. It's already spreading across the Mediterranean. So what does he pray for them? What does he pray for this church? At the start, I ask this question. What do you pray for someone who has everything? Let me, let me have a look. This is from verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a bit of a curious prayer, this one here. This is his request prayer to God. And again, it's all one sentence in, in the original Greek, from verse 9 through to verse 14. One thought for Paul. And the main thing he prays for them here is knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will. Why would Paul pray for this, for this church? They're, they're doing well. They've got faith, hope, and love. But he prays for knowledge of God's will. It's probably not God's will for each of them as individuals, a particular you know, track or, or goal they should be following, but God's will in the world, which is really focused on a couple of things. God's will to send Jesus and rescue all who believe in him, and God's will for his people to live lives that glorify God. He wants them to know these purposes of God just a bit more deeply. And he says this will come from wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, knowing about God and knowing God's will is always a good thing. To understand who God is, what God does. But Paul's got his eyes on a particular outcome of knowing God's will. And that's that they would live holy lives. His phrasing is, live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. I don't think we should read into this that the Colossians were off the rails in their behaviour or they were, you know, immoral or something. But when he prays for knowledge, Paul prays for it, not just for its own sake. There's an outcome he wants to see. He wants to see a change in their lives, in beliefs, in attitudes, in behaviour. Okay, so what's that going to look like on the ground? What, what is going to be the evidence to show that they've known God's will more? How's that going to look? Well, Paul says four things should be visible. Firstly, bearing fruit in good works. This is probably the main thing we think of when we think of holy lives, doing good things, being productive for God, bearing fruit. Secondly, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this might feel a little bit circular, I think, at this point, right? You think he's praying they'll know God's will more, 
so that it will change their lives. And one of those changes is they would know about God more. It can feel a bit circular, but I think what happens here is Paul suggesting knowing God more actually grows on itself. It, it feeds itself. The more you know God more and you change your life in that way, you learn more about who God is. It increases that desire to know God. Thirdly, being strengthened with all power uh, to have endurance and patience. I think this is great evidence of a holy life, particularly at this time, being able to endure the persecution that Christians were going to face and having patience. Evidence that they deeply know God's will. And fourthly, giving thanks to God. That is, as they know, as they know God's will more, one big change that they should see is they should be more thankful to God for what he's done. And I think that makes sense. So much of God's will is about what he does for us, for our benefit. So as the Colossians deepen that knowledge of what God's done for them in Jesus, it should result in gratitude and thanksgiving. Paul finishes his prayer with a reminder of God's rescue of his people through Jesus, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Okay, there's quite a lot in there. There's, there's a lot in there. What does it really mean? I would say in summary, Paul wants the Colossians to know God's will and live in light of that. To know God's will and live in light of that. Now, that might sound fine. That might sound pretty uncontroversial. It might almost sound a bit generic, a bit vanilla, perhaps. Why is this important here? And how does this line up with that Thanksgiving from before? As we'll work through Colossians over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul's writing in the context of a town where there was a bundle of false teaching. It doesn't seem like it's infiltrated the church very much, but it was certainly there in the town, and there was a risk that it could become an issue in the future. A lot of this teaching was encouraging believers not to reject Jesus outright, but to add something, to add something to their faith. It was kind of Jesus and teaching. It's great you've got Jesus, that's wonderful, here's that extra thing you need. You're not quite there yet. And we're going to look at this teaching and the problems with it in a couple of future weeks. But for now, think about how Paul's responding to this challenge. Initially, he praises the Colossians, right? He says, you're complete. You've got faith, hope, and love. They're not lacking anything. They're the real deal. And so when they come up against teaching in the marketplace or from visiting philosophers that suggest there's something they need to add to Jesus, there's something important that they haven't quite got yet, some extra special spiritual philosophy certain practices they should be doing, they don't need to worry. They can be confident. They don't need that stuff. They're complete. They're not missing anything. They're not deficient in their walk with God. They can ignore the false teaching suggesting they're incomplete. At the same time, Paul prays for them to know God's will more so it will change their lives. He prays they'll grow in this knowledge and wisdom and understanding and it will change how they live. He prays for maturity of belief and action. See, this Colossian church is complete, but it's not particularly mature. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing missing. It's just young. It's just, it's only been around a few years. Growth is needed. And so the reason Paul prays for maturity of belief and action is so the church will be strong enough and confident enough in Jesus that it won't be led astray by the false teaching. If this all sounds fairly kind of technical and philosophical, Thankfully, there is a, a really good image that I think will help. This is not my image, but if you're going to remember an image for the Colossian church, you can take this one. That's the image. It's the image of a baby. See, a newborn baby 
maybe even a one-year-old, is a complete human, isn't it? It's complete. Nothing is missing. But it's not mature. It's not mature. Now, that's not a big issue, really. They just need to grow. Paul's not panicking about the Colossian church. Just like you or I wouldn't panic if we saw, you know, a healthy little baby. We wouldn't look at a baby and think, what's wrong with this thing? It's so small. Most humans are not this size. It can't talk. It can't eat. It can't even move. We need help. This is a problem. It can't drive a car. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. It's just young. It's just an infant. It's still complete. There's no problem. But Paul's prayer for the Colossian church is that it would grow, that this baby church would grow. He wants it to grow in belief and action so it's less vulnerable to outsiders who might try and trip it up. So that it's more confident in who it is, confident in its assurance in Jesus Christ. I think it's a helpful image. I find it a helpful image for this church. Like a baby, complete but not yet mature. You might be wondering, what's this got to do with me? Well, let me jump across to John chapter 3. This is a conversation Jesus had when he was on earth. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. In John 3, when Jesus has this conversation with a religious leader, he tells him no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus describes someone who trusts in Jesus as born again, a newborn, if you will, spiritually having new life in Jesus. This image of a baby, it's a biblical image, and it fits so well because a baby is complete, but not yet mature. There is a sense in which everyone who trusts in Jesus, every believer in Jesus, who relies on Jesus' death and resurrection to be right with God, is like this Colossian church. We're complete in our faith. We're not missing anything. There's no extra bits to be added on later, like an extra arm gets added on when someone turns 10 years old, or an extra eye when they're 18 or something. No, baby's complete. But like a baby, we need to grow. The Colossian church needed to grow in maturity so it could respond to those risks it was facing. And we need to grow as well in maturity so we are less vulnerable to risk. Later in the New Testament, biblical authors pick up on this image as well. And from time to time, it refers to Christians as infants in the New Testament, encouraging growth. I should say, occasionally, this language is a bit of a rebuke in some churches where really the church should have matured a bit more by now. But usually, it's a reference to vulnerability, the need for growth to avoid falling for false teaching. So, for example, in Ephesians, using the same image, we read then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In future weeks, we're going to look more closely at the examples in Colossae, the the, the risks that the Colossian church faced. But for now, I just want to consider how we might be similar to the Colossian church. If you're here and you trust in Jesus and you have faith in what Jesus has done, you have hope for the future 
and you seek, even though it's hard, to love God and to love others, you're complete. I want to encourage you in this. God knows you and God loves you. You are complete and you are safe in His hands. Nothing is missing for you. But depending on how long we've been walking with Jesus and what we've learnt through the journey, we're going to be at different stages of growth in maturity, in faith and action. Some here might be fairly young, still with a lot of growing up to do. Others here might be more mature, having already grown a lot. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is a good prayer for all of us, to grow in the knowledge of God's will, who God is, God's plans for us, God's work in the world. And as we grow and mature more in this, we will be less vulnerable to risks, less vulnerable to risks that might shake us in our faith. So the challenge is, if you're a follower of Jesus, how will you grow? How will we grow? How will we continue to mature? There's lots of ways you can do that. Hearing from God's Word is a great way to do it. Gathering with His people. If you're hearing this message today, then at least to some extent you've chosen to do that. If you're watching online as well. At the moment, we're going to go through this whole book of Colossians and it's going to be a great opportunity for us to learn more about God's will and to grow in faith together. Another great way you can grow and mature is by being part of a small group of believers who gather regularly during the week to read the Bible, to discuss and to pray. Many here are already in small groups, I know, uh, I am myself, but if you would like to be part of one, if that's something that would interest you as you seek to grow in your faith, please do speak to me or Shelby after the service. We'd love to connect you with one of our small groups. And a final encouragement as we think of how we can grow is to spend time regularly with God, reading the Bible and praying to God on your own. I know, again, many here do this already, and it can be hard, I find this hard, to find a rhythm of reading God's Word and praying. But it's a wonderful way, maybe even the best way, to grow and mature in our faith. So today, as we've considered the Colossian church, complete but not yet mature, let me give you an encouragement and a challenge. The encouragement is you are spiritually complete. If you trust in Jesus, you're not missing any key crucial bits that you should have. But at the same time, the challenge, as it was for the Colossians, is to grow, to mature in our faith, to be more like Jesus. Well, one thing we're going to do as well today is to celebrate in communion. And as Paul celebrated the fact that the Colossians were a complete church, even if they weren't mature yet, when we share in the communion meal, we also celebrate we are complete as believers in Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Because of our predisposition to reject and ignore God, our default state before God is guilty. But because of Jesus' death in our place, all who trust in Jesus, all who receive Jesus' forgiveness through his death for us, we have everything we need to stand before God, forgiven and free. We are complete. We are complete. Let me pray now and let me thank God for what he's done for us in Jesus. Lord God, this morning we come before you humbly. Lord, acknowledging before you our sin, our rejection of you, our disregarding of your call in our lives. And Lord, we are sorry. And Lord, we come before you today grateful as well. Grateful that you did not leave us to wallow in our sin. Lord, you did not leave us as our sins deserve, but you 
came in the flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord, lived and died and rose again for our sake, taking upon yourself the consequences of our sin and rejection of you, so, Lord, that we might receive forgiveness and freedom. And thank you, Lord, that through what you've done, not through any effort of our own, but through what you've done, you have made us complete. You have completed us, that we have what we need. Incredibly, Lord, to stand before you, our holy God, and receive forgiveness and freedom. Lord, I pray that as we receive from your table today, you would encourage us again, strengthen us, and remind us of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the apostle